there is much that these women have to tell, but the stakes in revealing that are very high. That's Martha Jones, professor of history and of Afro-American and African studies at the University of Michigan, as well as director of the Michigan Law Program in Race, Law, and History. Today, Professor Jones discusses a book she recently co-edited, which is called Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. For a long time, to study intellectual history or the history of ideas was to study the dialogues and debates conducted by major European and American thinkers, the top philosophers, critics, and writers, who are almost always white and almost always men. But as our culture changed and the voices of women and minorities became more prominent, historians changed their interests too. Scholars like Martha Jones, our guest today, have focused on new questions and new areas of interest. In Jones's case, the intellectual history of black women. Today we hear from Professor Jones about a book she recently co-edited toward an intellectual history of black women. We also discuss the significance of that work in light of the current political situation in America, especially given the recent election of Donald Trump to the presidency. That and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Professor Jones, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thanks for having me. You're a professor of history as well as of Afro-American and African studies at the University of Michigan, but you also teach in the law school there at U of M, where you direct the Michigan Law Program in Race, Law, and History. What are the central questions you like to ask at this intersection? So what about this crossroads between race, history, and the law has struck you as uniquely important to understand? That's a great question. One of the things that I've learned as I work between not only these fields, but these faculties, in part of the ways in which we think about history, its premises, its methodologies, but really its purpose, very differently in these three spheres. And so if, as you can imagine, in the history context, we are interestingly preoccupied by questions of method, of, with historiography, right? first and foremost, oftentimes, right, that conversation, those debates mm. among and between historians. It's true that when you then talk history with a law faculty or with an African-American studies faculty, historiography very quickly falls away. That's not the preoccupation or the fascination or what drives the interest in and the study of the past at all. In law, it was Alfred Kelly, more than a half century ago, who coined the notion of law office history. And I encounter a lot of what we might term law office history in legal studies circles. What do we mean by that? We mean that law is, history is something oftentimes for legal thinkers and particularly legal practitioners, which is instrumental selectively engaged and linked expressly to trying to craft a persuasive winning argument. Mm. And in that sense, historiography be damned in a mm. sense, if you're a lawyer. And I once was one because my primary objective is not to be true 
right, to the literature or the debates or the evolution of the field and its understandings, my primary objective is the zealous representation of a client or of a cause in that are interesting and inherent tensions. These days I've been thinking about it as very much parallel to, I think, a more familiar tension for historians, which is the one between filmmakers and historians, right? The ways in which we take issue with, condemn, and otherwise challenge how filmmakers interpret and represent the past. Well, filmmakers are many things, storytellers, oftentimes foremost, and they take liberties with what historians might think right are the, the strictures of the field you recently co-edited co-edited excuse me a book called toward an intellectual history of black women which helps begin writing the history of, of black women as producers of knowledge or as intellectuals what what drew you to this project in particular what questions did you want to answer the first thing to know about this project is that it came out of a collective that is to say, a long-standing, ultimately tight-knit group of scholars, some of us in history, others of us in literary studies, all of whom recognized in our work this thread that was intellectual history that was largely un, not articulated in the work. Um, and so even before we began to have formal meetings, before certainly we began to write together, there was this way in which we were working as a collective to think critically about the fields out of which we came and figure out how the work was positioned. We were also trying to, I think, build on what had really been an explosion since the mid-1990s of biographies, biography, book-length biographies, scholarly biographies of African-American women, Nell Painter's biography of Sojourner Truth, Barbara Rand's Beyond Ella Baker, Catherine Clinton on Harriet Tubman, Eula Taylor on Amy uh, Jacques Garvey. I could go on, but there was this explosion in biographical work, which I think we can appreciate is oftentimes a foundation for an essential component to thinking about historical figures as intellectuals, as the producers of ideas over time. So we were definitely building on that. I was really influenced by two additional things. One is behind much of my work is that of Mary Ryan, her book, Women in Public, which now decades before me now was a book that insisted that we go back and look for women in the places we had been told they were not present, right? The places where women didn't matter. And Ryan inspired my first book on black women and the debates around women's rights in African-American public culture. But more generally, that sort of admonition sent us back to, for example, the African-American press to look for women and their ideas in ways that are is an old an old approach now in women's history and African American history. So in some ways the women we were looking for were always there. But I think a lot of us and this is the last thing a, a lot of us had to make a kind of 
migration as we began to come together on under the rubric of intellectual history. That is, we had to begin to try and see our own work differently, to see the way in which, in fact, we had been writing a style of intellectual history all along. And for me, this kind of revelation was sparked when my colleague now at Northwestern, Leslie Harris, wrote to me after teaching my first book, All Bound Up Together. And she said to me something like, the students were puzzled at first about this book because what they thought they were going to be reading was social history or cultural history, perhaps political history. But what they concluded and and what came out of the discussion was the degree to which that book had been an intellectual Mm -hmm. history. And it was the first time someone had ever said that to me. And it really gave me something to chew on, right? And then that kind of question about my own work sort of carries us through the long process of what becomes the book toward an intellectual history of black women. Also, in the title itself, that word toward seems to be doing a lot of work. It seems to be operative. The idea that I got, in a sense, was that, as you say, these women, these subjects who you wanted to study were already there, and to some degree they'd already been talked about, but the things that you were wanting to say about them were new, particularly taking them as not just the objects of knowledge, but actually the producers of knowledge. They were inaugurators of, or or the starters of entire discourses they had to uh, communicate with each other and communicate with the world and express their ideas in ways that were complicated because their voices had been constrained. Have I got that right? Was that part of the point of the project initially? Absolutely. And, And you bring us close to what we might think of as the politics of history itself, right, as a field. And there's no question that in developing this volume and working as collaborators, we spent a lot of time looking at the the historiographic and the professional terrain. We were certainly not naive going in, but it was remarkable to us the degree to which African-American women were assumed to be outside, whether it be going through the programs of distinguished and important conferences in the field or picking up, you know, yet another edited volume in the field. We began to understand that there was an intervention perhaps called for that would disrupt the kinds of assumptions that were still shaping the field in the 21st century. Why do you think these subjects weren't initially studied? The first thing that comes to mind for me is just that intellectual history as it was once practiced in the mid-20th century, I mean, very much reflected just the the general sort of mainstream attitude towards studying texts that weren't necessarily written by sort of very serious European male figures. So back then, the field was focused on the history of ideas, and it was focused in kind of a platonic way, mainly on big ideas as they were batted around between America and Europe. So when you turn your attention to, say, the intellectual work of black women, did you find that, was there a lot of primary source material for you to use? Or did you feel like you were basically having to start from scratch and really fill in a lot of historical gaps and and silences? On the one hand, I think that we benefited when we began this project from the long generations of 
women's historians, social historians, African-American historians who had already taught us how to approach the thorny matter of recovering the not only the lives, but the ideas of historical subjects thought to be unrecoverable. So we have a lot, uh, a robust, right, and an important literature that precedes this kind of intervention on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think it did take a kind of specialized knowledge of African-American women's social and political history for us to know where to look precisely. And one of the things that I remember doing early on is going back to some of the late 19th and early 20th century collective biographies and compilations that were really political artifacts of the period that documented black women's lives and are a sort of wealth of data for folks who are just starting in the field, but recognizing the ways in which even in the 19th century, there were those who were trying to map out these women's lives for us. But you had to know where to look for those because they don't, maybe as you're suggesting, right, they're not part of a canon, right? And they're not collected and published as such. They almost have a sort of antiquarian Mm -hmm. um, quality to them. Many of them are institutional histories of African-American churches, for example. Back to Mary Ryan's admonition, right? Go back to those sources, now ask a new kind of question, and you can really go somewhere. Now, I had been trained in the 90s by, among others, Manning Marable at Columbia University. And Marable taught a course on black intellectuals. And so they're already, right, by the mid-90s is an important sort of counter-narrative of intellectual Mm. history that is in place. But most notably for this conversation is that Marable's syllabus included one woman. Mm -hmm. In the typical 14 or 15 weeks, Bell Hooks, certainly a figure worthy of, of that place on the syllabus and more, um, was the only woman there. And when I reflect now on this project, I think in some ways for me personally, it was finally the response, if you will, unfortunately, posthumously, right, but a response to Professor Marable and the way he had taught the Mm -hmm. subject. I had raised that question to him as a graduate student, but I didn't have the full armament of material. And here, this book, 20 years later, really was a way of rethinking his syllabus and the way he, as an African-American historian, had begun to recraft the narrative of U.S. intellectual history through figures, as you can imagine, including W.E.B. Du Bois, but on the other hand, hadn't yet thought thoroughly about how women might also transform that narrative. And just for context, Marable, what, Marable won the Pulitzer Prize, right, for uh, his book on he Malcolm did. X? He did. Uh, Malcolm X biography, um, and I was one of many, but hardly the most important of his graduate students who did work on that oh, project wow. in the 90s. But I was there at Columbia just as he was launching his what was then the new Institute for Research in African American Studies. And and this course on black intellectuals was one of his signature seminars. 
if I can ask, and your contribution to the book was actually the last chapter, and it was it took up contemporary matters, which we'll get into. But if you can recall, I think Phyllis Wheatley was mentioned, the, the 18th century African-American poet, was mentioned in the beginning as sort of an example of a kind of figure who you and your colleagues were going to take up and toward an intellectual history of black women. Which, which other figures did you, did you and your colleagues take up and why? If you could just list one or two, perhaps. For me, one of the most fascinating and largely unknown to me figures was Mers Tate, the diplomatic historian who spent most of her career at Howard University in the history department. So here is Mary Ryan's admonition, right? writ large, a woman who was widely published, um, highly regarded in diplomatic history circles, has an impressive body of work that takes a quite ordinary classic form, the scholarly article, the monograph, who in her own life, as our colleague Barbara Savage has so vividly recovered, faces challenges around being a woman in Howard's very distinguished history department in the 20th century, and who, for many intellectual historians, was not even recognized as a black woman. Her Mm. name, Mers Tate, was, I guess, ambiguous enough (laughs) that it didn't mark her either racially or in gender terms. And so for many folks who had written about her and written about the field, she was recognized, but not recognized in her full identity. I think that's a fascinating example of the ways in which asking the questions and then knowing where to look leads to extraordinary new insights into intellectual history. Tate herself was, um, as Barbara explains, highly self-conscious about herself as a historical subject. And so she left a remarkable, remarkable archive. Uh, And so, um, and as I understand it now, Barbara is um, well on her way to a book-length biography and intellectual history of Tate. So that is one sort of example of what comes out of a project like this, which is something we recognize. I will say something about my own essay, if only because it it highlights sort of another far corner of, of the spectrum. I wound up reading and writing about, I think with great utility, African-American women's production of ideas in the blogosphere. Here, at the urging of the collective, I wound up writing from a kind of archive, from a set of sources that hadn't even occurred to me, frankly, at the beginning of this project, but it turns out to be one of the spaces in which we can capture, for my question, how women who are not elite women, women who are not especially academically trained or inclined, mm-hmm. um, are also have created a space, have contributed to what we now recognize some 10 years later as a as a, a vital sort of genre for the production and the debate of ideas. That was stunning to me that you could go to those kinds of spaces and that women were speaking in terms that are, were immediately recognizable as the working out of theory as engaged with life experience in ways that for me, were fairly powerful. So I think those give you a sense of the kind of range of materials 
I'll mention Mia Bay's essay, which is on 19th century black women. You know, Bay is so well remembered for her having in her book, The White Image in the Black Mind, having returned and recovered African-American racial thought. And one of the things she told us is that in finishing that book, she knew that she had not fully engaged, not fully explored women the way she might have. So for some of the authors, this book was an opportunity to come back to projects that they had long lived with, again, with new questions and to come at it again. And Bay's article does that, but it also helps us appreciate the degree to which, in fact, there are particular challenges to recovering, for example, the ideas and the complexity of the ideas of 19th century black women as contrasted with their male counterparts, because as Darlene Clark Hine and others have explained, there was a culture of dissemblance paired with a politics of respectability that made many of these women resolutely self-conscious about shielding their ideas from the public gaze, from public scrutiny. The sense was that to say too much, to reveal too much might be to open one up to criticism, but more importantly to derision. And so these are women who are walking a very fine line trying to be thinkers trying oftentimes to be activists and to affect social change, but are also aware that they, their families and their communities are particularly vulnerable. And so we can't always know as much about their thought as we wish we could. That's so interesting because I, you and your co-editors point out in the introduction and elsewhere, quote, that black women's intellectual histories can never be explained by way of a mere genealogy of ideas. Your essays have to follow the subjects from, quote, political podiums, church pulpits, and the streets into intimate sites of writing, the letter, the short story, the poem, and the novel. The result is intellectual history that, as you call it, is black woman style. That is an approach that understands ideas as necessarily produced in dialogue with lived experience and always inflected by the social facts of race class and gender. What's so striking about that is that it suggests that in order to develop an intellectual portrait of your subjects, you essentially as an historian have to get creative because they couldn't just just disclose what they thought about topics just in a sort of treatise as other thinkers could. They had to be clever and thoughtful about the ways in which they, as you say, that they disclose and they lived in a culture that required that, the concealment of their ideas in certain situations. Could you talk about that? How difficult was it or what moves did it require for you to help paint an intellectual portrait of subjects when you really have to wade through all these different kinds of materials? Yeah, I think that the example that is one of the most arresting to me is someone, I think, we've not yet been able to fully write about in these terms. And this is Sarah Maps Douglas, who is a 19th century black woman born into privileged elite circles in antebellum Philadelphia, who lives a long life as a, an anti-slavery activist, as a religious activist, as a teacher, 
who is well and formally trained in biological sciences and particularly anatomy and physiology. And one of the things we know about Sarah Maps Douglas, because we see the reports in newspapers, is that she lectured frequently and widely in Philadelphia and in the region to women about their health, about their bodies, about their reproductive selves in a way that was quite forward-looking in the mid-19th century. She was really a pathbreaker. And I have long lamented in my own work, having been being able to tell you that, but never having been able to actually tell you what she said. And then we did a little more digging where into good old social history archives, and we recovered Sarah Maps Douglas's last will and testament. And it's a fascinating document in many ways, but for our conversation, what's most fascinating is one of the last directives in her will is that she charges her brothers, who are her, her also her executors, um, she charges them with destroying all of her personal papers, including her speeches mm. and her talks and her lessons. So here is a woman who has turned out to be a subject of great interest on many themes in historical writing, who very self-consciously deprived us, in a sense, of the capacity to fully know, to fully engage, to critique, even perhaps her ideas. And I think this is one of the points of both frustration, right, because you're the historian who, you know, not only fetishizes the archive, but really depends upon it for certain kinds of work. But it also um, is an example that helps us appreciate the ways in which these are women who are deeply self-conscious about their place in the historical record and are going to quite deliberately shape what we can and to some degree what we cannot say. Much of what we know about Sarah Maps Douglas so saying that she's one of she's she's an example. Sarah Maps Douglas is an example of the degree to which African American women were self-consciously crafting the way we can and and do know them. And in her example she really deprives us of fully recovering her as an intellectual, fully recovering her ideas, precisely because she directs that her materials be destroyed. What we can recover in this regard comes in part through African-American newspapers where she's published and comes through, for example, the Weld-Grimke papers, which are here at the University of Michigan. She was a, a regular correspondent with the Grimke sisters and so we can recover some of her there, but her own materials are lost to us now, by her own doing. Now, why would she have determined or said that her material should be uh, destroyed? Well, I think we can't fully know, right, because she doesn't tell us. But I think Darlene Clark Hines' more general reading of what she calls the culture of dissemblance suggests that a woman like Sarah Maps Douglas would not want to be misremembered and would not want her very sensitive writings on subjects like sexuality 
women's bodies, women's intimacy, would not want those at the end of the 19th century to fall into the hands of those who are, with the rise of a Jim Crow ideology, beginning to use perceptions or assumptions or even misunderstandings about black women's intimate lives against them. You might remember that what brings Ida Wells to the fore for historians is a moment in which she begins to wrangle as a journalist with white men journalists who are accusing black women of living by way of aberrant sexual mores, of being part of family lives that didn't comport somehow with middle-class Victorian standards. Um, So black women in the latter part of the 19th century are very aware that they are being watched and scrutinized particularly around their bodies, about their sexuality, about their families, about childbearing. And I think Sarah Mapps Douglas likely was someone who didn't want her papers to fall into the wrong hands, someone who might then misread or extrapolate out somehow that black women were not women, were not entitled to the privileges of womanhood or the privileges of citizenship. These are women, some of whom are descendants of enslaved women who, for whom just off stage in their own family histories are histories of sexual violence and exploitation. So there is much, as Darlene long ago explained to us, that these women have to tell, but the stakes in revealing that are very high. And as a consequence, some of them do very self-consciously deprive us of the archives that might let us tell those histories in their fullest form. The book examines, as you've been describing, the book examines the lives and thought of black women from around the 18th century to the present. Your chapter is the last, and it takes up the 2008 presidential race, particularly, I think, the primary duel between Obama and Clinton. You seem to take issue with the way that debate was framed as a sort of race versus gender battle, the strange way that is most analyses preceded as if, and you put it this way, as if all African Americans were men and all women were white. So what did you argue in that chapter? In short, I argued that misperceptions, parodic perceptions of 19th century political culture in 2008 fueled misperceptions of 21st century political culture as embodied in the contest between Clinton and Obama. And What we encountered during that primary race were commentators, analysts, pundits, many of whom drew upon a story about the mid-19th century, one that represented political culture as having been embodied in the figures of Frederick Douglass on the one hand and Elizabeth Cady Stanton on the other. And the analysis went, well... Back in the 1860s, this was a lamentable falling out between black men and white women, and we shouldn't commit the same error in the 21st century as we approach the contest between Barack Obama 
and Hillary Clinton. And as an African-American women's historian, there is a curious and provocative omission in that line of thinking. And it is, of course, that whether we're speaking of mid-19th century political culture or we're speaking of 21st century political culture, African-American women are present, are viable actors in the body politic, and we cannot understand either the past or the present in this example by way of a view that assumes all the men were, or all black people were men, or all women were white. In the 19th century, eloquent and powerful figures like Francis Ellen Watkins Harper are critical to appreciating that in that old coalition of anti-slavery and women's rights activists, black women were present. And they attempted, at least, to point away through the dilemma about how and the degree to which that coalition should be thinking about race as it intersects with gender when, for example, they take up the question of the 15th Amendment and the support of the 15th Amendment. Well, similarly, and perhaps even more dramatically, in 2008, you really would have had to put your head in the sand not to appreciate the ways in which black women were shaping political culture and that contest in particular. And so the essay goes on to recover this really extraordinarily diverse range of black women from a familiar figure today like Michelle Obama to Condoleezza Rice to Oprah Winfrey to Melissa Harris mm -hmm. Perry, Donna Brazil. These were black women who were highly visible in 2008 and each of whom in her own way made clear that you could not fully understand the American electorate if you thought men stood somewhere and women stood on one place and black people stood in another because as black women, of course, they lived the embodiment of that intersectional analysis that was so important in 2008. Well, those points relate to uh, some questions I have about what's going on right now. But I, before we get to that, I do want to ask a bit about you. Professor Jones, where did you uh, grow up and, and go to school? I was born in central Harlem in uh, the Riverton uh, houses, and I uh, went to school in suburban New York City on Long Island. And so you work you work now as a scholar of history as well as of the law, and you um, you sort of reference the interaction between those two things early in our conversation. So were you drawn to one before the other? Uh, so how and when did your interest develop? Sure. I was a pre-law major in college, and after a, a gap year, uh, went immediately to law school. And I attended CUNY Law School in New York, which is uh, New York City's law school devoted to the training of public interest lawyers. And I spent nearly a decade after law school practicing public interest law, representing people with disabilities and later women with HIV and AIDS in New York City. I began to appreciate that my legal training had really not given me a kind of historical perspective on many of the issues that I was confronting as a practitioner. And so I spent a year on a sabbatical 
as a Charles Revson fellow, Charles Revson fellow on the future of the city of New York at Columbia. It was intended to be a sabbatical year away from law where I would really expand my own training. And I went expressly to study history with Eric Foner mm. and Manning Marable during that year. And it wasn't even midway through the year when I recognized that history was not just an embellishment for me. It wasn't just a context for my legal practice, but for me, it was a deeply compelling field of inquiry in its own right. And so rather than go back to my practice, when that year was up, I stayed at Columbia to do my PhD. You talked a bit about Marable earlier. What about Professor Froner? He uh, is the influential historian of the Civil War era, era right? And, and wrote that uh, book on, on Reconstruction that I believe won the, was the Bancroft Prize? Sure, he did win the Bancroft for Reconstruction and more recently the Pulitzer for his biography of Lincoln. So what effect would you say his work has had on yours? I'm sure like a lot of people, it's hard to know where to begin, but I would say that there are a couple of important things. The first is that Professor Foner was deeply respectful of the years I had spent as a lawyer and the work I had done prior to coming to graduate school, and this created a context in which I could really, and I have been able to really draw upon my experiences and my insights from a very different field and a very different sort of endeavor and bring that to my historical work. And he really honored that and encouraged that from the beginning. And I'm deeply grateful. And it's part of what gave me license to be, I think, the interdisciplinary scholar that I am today. Eric Foner is a historian's historian, and what that means, among other things, is that I have watched him teach and preach and argue and urge historical thinking, not only in his distinguished books and articles, but in many public history settings. For the last 15 years, he and I have taught together nearly every summer high school history teachers through the Gilder Lehrman Institute. And so he's someone for me who really exemplified the degree to which the practice of history, the teaching of history, historical analysis is not something reserved to the ivory tower, that we have not only the possibility, but perhaps the obligation to bring historical thinking and insight to many sorts of Mm. spheres. And so I like to think that in my own work, be it in curating exhibitions or writing in popular venues or teaching non-specialists, I'm always living up to that expectation that I would never be someone cloistered in the academy. That relates to some of the writing you do for popular publications, because I, I believe you've published in the Huffington Post as well as the Boston Globe and, and on CNN. How do you think about that? Could you talk a bit more about that idea of, of as an historian, you have some sort of vocation to the general public? When, when you write a column, for example, or, or an op-ed, what are you thinking? How do you want to present your knowledge? What effect do you want it to have on the public? Well, I think if there's one thing that runs through all of that work that I do, it is the notion that I'm wanting to show a general readership the ways in which history and historical thinking matters for them. And 
that, of course, means, as many people do, I think it means being attuned to the issues of the day, what is hot button, right? what is on people's minds, and trying to write directly into that right, with historical insight as well. For, for me, it is also meant writing much more personally and autobiographically than I had ever expected I would. None of my training had especially prepared me for that. But what I've learned in that sort of writing is that the degree to which we're really willing to tell our own stories and to frame them, explain them in part through historical thinking, it is deeply compelling for a general public to understand not only our scholarly insights, but the ways in which scholarly insights inform our own lived experience. Mm. So I tried to do some of that writing as well. I know I have to uh, let you go in a few minutes here, Professor, but I do want to ask quickly a couple questions about current events since we're, it's, we're so quickly approaching November 8th. First, you write a bit about, as you say, Michelle Obama at the end of Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women. It's interesting that her speech in New Hampshire about Trump has really widely been considered. I think I read this in, in the Washington Post as well as in The Nation and other publications. It's considered among the most important political speeches of the year, to be sure. So what what did you make of it when you saw it? Well, beyond being deeply impressed, I have to say... I was not among those who was surprised. I've been studying and writing about Mrs. Obama since 2008 when she entered the, the public political stage in such a vivid way. And anyone who has followed her, I think, since then already knows her to be a, a deeply insightful, compelling, powerful public speaker with a very clear and unique message. How to understand that most of the country apparently missed that until 2016, it's hard for me to say. It may be that people were misread or overread some of her projects as first lady. Maybe it is because it is still a challenge for us to fully appreciate African-American women as people of ideas. But I would say in the wake of the Obama presidency, there is a very serious book to be written about Mrs. Obama. Peter Slevin has, has written a wonderful biography. But I think even beyond that, I do think that taking her on as a thinker, as a producer of ideas, will be a fruitful and fascinating project for someone because that has been there going back to her speech at the Democratic National Convention, which is epitomizes many things, including what in academia we would term an intersectional analysis mm -hmm. of American politics. She understood that well and told it like no one else could back eight years ago. As I said, we're recording this conversation before November 8th, but we'll likely release it just a bit after. So I guess for the for the historical record, and this is my last question, what are some of your thoughts and anxieties and perhaps hopes um, as we approach Election Day? On this, I think I take my cue from how I have experienced and read uh, debates 
and discussions with the young people on my own campus. Students are always such a powerful touchstone, I think, and this election cycle is no exception for that. And on the one hand, I have to feel hopeful, if only because amidst all the noise around this election, I have seen young people take this contest, its issues, its personnel, deeply serious. In in our African-American Studies Department, we host debate night gatherings for students. And we've done this now for at least, this is probably the third election cycle. So we did this in African-American Studies during both of President Obama's runs, and they were well-attended, really successful events. But this year, we had to create overflow rooms Mm -hmm. because students are so engaged. And while historically we always had faculty who came in and framed the debate and identified the issues, well, this time around, the students stepped up and did that themselves. So I see a kind of heightened awareness and a heightened interest and a seriousness that I think as a general matter for thinking about the future of democracy in the United States is so essential. And I feel, I feel hopeful when I encounter that. Now, on our campus, we have also been targeted from many sides by folks from beyond our community who I think have attempted to disrupt and disturb the kind of robust far-ranging and really important conversations that we are having here during this election cycle. And I certainly worry about the capacity of a few to inhibit, to intimidate, to frighten, and to discourage us and discourage young people, most importantly, from being out and active and part of the political process I worry if that is part of our future and the future of our political landscape, intimidation, humiliation. We have a a saying here these days, which is spread ideas, not hate. And with that, at the University of Michigan, we are trying to really emphasize where we are, where we hope to be, where we want to continue to be, which is a place that makes room for all ideas. But I think I'm not sure yet, certainly of the outcome of this election. I'm not certain about that, but I'm not certain about the degree to which some of what I think the most regretful dimensions of this political cycle, what effect that will have on particularly young people's willingness to take, to have the courage and to take the risks that it demands to be a fully formed member and of this democracy. It's not an easy thing to do, and there are reasons to not do it, unfortunately, that have come out of this cycle. Professor Jones, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Sure. Thanks very much for having me. That was Martha Jones, professor of history at the University of Michigan. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. 
Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.